My name is Tony Sundermeyer, the senior pastor, and I want to thank you for watching today's broadcast. Now, I invite you to join in the worship of God. Well, during this Advent season, we have been anchored in the theme, While We Are Waiting, Come. To set the pace of our worship, we have been looking to the lectionary texts. These are texts that come to us in this given year. They're part of a three-year cycle. Uh, so the texts are, aren't chosen by us. The texts choose us during this Advent season. The text that Jamie read for us, and now the text that I'll read from Luke. But before I read it, let me just say, uh, I don't know about you, but I have never seen a Hallmark Christmas card that features John the Baptist. Have you ever seen one? No, because John the Baptist really doesn't quite say Merry Christmas, does he? We'll find out that truth once again as we hit the Gospel of Luke beginning in the seventh chapter. Listen to God's word to you and to me. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Happy holidays. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked John, uh, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day. A challenging word indeed. So that we maybe different people than those who came into this space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Jerry Bowler is a Canadian historian who's carved out quite a niche for himself. 
Uh, Dr. Bowler has become uh, the foremost scholar on Santa Claus. He's become one of the foremost scholars on Christmas, and he finds himself writing and speaking about both of these topics, about Christmas and about Santa Claus, in academic settings as he takes a more historical approach toward the life of Santa Claus, the history of Santa Claus, and the history of Christmas. Uh, One of his books is entitled Christmas in the Crosshairs, 2,000 Years of Denouncing and Defending the World's Most Popular Holiday. Uh, For me, one of the most important takeaways from this book was an appreciation Uh, for the fact that there has historically, historically for 2,000 years, been controversy. There's been controversy for 2,000 years as to who gets to define the meaning and what constitutes as proper observance of the season of Christmas. Who gets to define the meaning and, and what, is, what does, rather, a proper observance of this holiday actually look like? That struggle, that battle, has been going on for 2,000 years. Take, for example, the so-called War on Christmas. Maybe you've heard about this War on Christmas in our time. I kind of assumed that the War on Christmas was more of a modern phenomenon concocted by secularists who want no hint of religion either in the public square or in the marketplace. I kind of assumed that the war on Christmas was more of a contemporary phenomenon as it serves sort of as a rallying cry for a certain sect of Christians. You know who I'm talking about here. A certain sect of Christians that that use this as a rallying cry and, and perceive their enemies to be any store clerk that wishes them happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas on their way out the door. Or they perceive their enemy to be any politician who refuses to construct a nativity crash outside a city hall and in its place they put a holiday tree. Right? I always thought the war on Christmas was something more recent, something contemporary to our time. But that's not the case. In actuality, throughout history, from the Puritans, who didn't like the celebration of Christmas very much, From the Puritans to French revolutionaries to Nazis, uh, even to communist Russia, where little children were taught that Stalin, not Santa Claus, delivered their presents on Christmas Eve night. There's been a war on Christmas throughout the generations. There have been antagonists and secularizers who have long been engaged by traditionalists and by religious folk in a battle for who gets to define the meaning and the proper observance of this Christmas holiday. As one commentator wrote, this battle is as old as the day Jesus left the manger. One of the other perspectives I walked away with from this uh, particular book is, is that commercialization and greed, which is often associated with Christmas, uh, commercialization and greed is actually not a new thing either. I thought this happened to be a byproduct of of what happens when when capitalism and and, and Christmas collide. But in actuality, commercialization and greed 
uh, connected to Christmas and the fight by those who try to purify Christmas. You know, the folks who put keep the Christ and Christmas uh, as a bumper sticker on the back of their car. You, you know what I'm talking about here. Trying to purify uh, the Christmas season. I thought that battle long preceded, I, I didn't think that battle long preceded our economic situation today, our economic intuition uh, today. C- consider this particular line from a Christmas sermon uh, delivered on Christmas Day. The preacher said this in their sermon. This festival, meaning Christmas, teaches even the little children, artless and simple, to be greedy. The tender minds of the young begin to be impressed with that which is commercial and sordid. Now you might think a line like that came from a 20th century preacher, maybe a 21st century preacher, but it was actually delivered by a bishop presiding in what today is modern-day Turkey. His name was Asterius, and he delivered that line in a sermon on December 25th in the year 400. You see, whether it's the war on Christmas or the pushback against the infiltration of greed and commercialization, which often can overshadow the meaning of the season. The reality is this. The more things change, the more they stay the same. There have been challenges. There have been conflicts. There have been battles. There have been assumptions that predate our own personal experience with them. There are challenges. There are conflicts. There are battles. There are assumptions that have been around longer than we have. And one of the oldest, one of the long-standing, one of the often-held assumptions throughout the generations, an assumption about God, an assumption that many people have possessed over time before perhaps we have come to possess this very assumption. This assumption about God really serves, I think, as the pretext for understanding this word that comes from the prophet Zephaniah in the third chapter. And I'm going to share the assumption in just a moment, but I have to set the scene for you first. The minor prophet Zephaniah wrote during the reign of King Josiah, and Josiah was a Reformation kind of King, He sought to bring reform to the political and religious structures of the time. You see, things had really gotten out of hand. Idolatry and greed and faithlessness and hypocrisy were part and parcel of both the religious and political experiences of the time. And, and despite the words of joy that we've heard from the third chapter of Jeremiah in those verses from 14 to 20, those that little section of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, you need to know, is only three chapters long. So this is sort of the end of Zephaniah, what we heard read uh, this morning, what Jamie read for us this morning. But the 28 verses that actually precede the verses we heard today, these verses of joy and restoration and freedom, the 28 verses that precede what we heard today are filled with judgment. They're filled with with a great degree of harshness. They're filled with words of wrath, criticism, and lament against the very people of God who are faithless 
in this time. And here's the assumption. One of the major assumptions that Zephaniah wants to take on in this particular text, one of the major assumptions that people even today, as they did back then, hold about God. One of the assumptions that they hold about God, perhaps you yourself hold about God in this very hour, comes from chapter 1, verse 12. It reads like this. At that time, the Lord says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the people who rest complacently on their dregs. Those who say in their hearts, here it is, the Lord will not do good, nor will the Lord do harm. That last line, the Lord will not do good, nor will God do harm. There is the assumption that people are carrying in their hearts about God. God is unconcerned. God is uninvolved. God will not do good to me. God will not do harm to me. God, in fact, won't do anything. God is inactive. God is indifferent. God, as Nietzsche said, is dead. God is complacent, and because God is complacent, because God is benign, the people can be complacent too. In this time that that the people of God had become spiritually lazy, they had become idolatrous, they tolerated social injustice and political corruption, and the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the people assumed, like many people today do in our secular age, that God wasn't going to do a darn thing about it. They could live however they want to live because the Lord would not do good, nor would the Lord do harm. God's not going to do anything. You see, there are some assumptions about God that people have been making for generations. And this particular assumption that God is inactive, that God is indifferent, is one that countless people have carried since the time of Zephaniah writing in the 7th century B.C. to our secular age here in the 21st century. Because, friends, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think one of the reasons it is so easy to hold on to this assumption and why people have held it from generation to generation across the ages, across the span of years, is because a God who is indifferent, if I believe in a God who is indifferent, who is inactive, if I believe in that kind of God who won't do good, who won't do harm, that God does not require a single thing from me. That God requires nothing of me. I can live my life free of divine judgment. I can live my life free of the moral requirements that John the Baptist listed off in the text we heard from Luke about sharing our clothes, about sharing our food, about, but not extorting more than is due to us, about doing our jobs with integrity and faithfulness. If it's that kind of God that exists out in the the world, I don't have anybody's will to be obedient to but my own. If God is indifferent, if God is inactive, if God will not do me harm and God won't do me any good, then I can do whatever I want to do without 
consequence. I'm reminded of the words of the great 20th century Christian ethicist, Richard Niebuhr, who said it like this, that we want a God without wrath, that brought people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. No wrath, no judgment, no one telling us that we're sinful, no consequences to be concerned about. And yet this is precisely what Zephaniah is saying in the first two and a half chapters of his prophetic word, that God is about to judge that God's about to execute God's wrath on the people. I mean, listen to the words from Zephaniah chapter one. The great day of the Lord is near, he says, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress. It'll be a day of anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Merry Christmas. Right? Because some of you are thinking right now, you know, we're nine days out from Christmas. And what in the world is the lectionary doing? And why in the world is the preacher focusing on judgment and wrath? I mean, we just lit the pretty pink candle for the third Sunday of Advent. Why all this talk of judgment? I mean, you got Zephaniah being all judgy and whatnot. Then you got John the Baptist all weirded out in his clothes, screaming at the top of his lungs, you brood of vipers, who told you, who warned you about the wrath that is to come? I mean, who wants that? I mean, you didn't come to church for that, did you, today? Did you? I know it, right? I mean, who wants that on the third Sunday of Advent? But that's exactly what the lectionary gives us. And I think one of the reasons it keeps us in these texts as hard as they are, one of the reasons it puts before us these challenging wrath and, and judgment-laden scriptures, one of the reasons they show up in this sacred season is because Christmas and the incarnation of God as the babe born to Mary in that little town of Bethlehem, that historic event, the coming of God in Christ Jesus, has everything to do with wrath. It actually has everything to do with judgment. In Zephaniah, following the details of the coming judgment of God, details that talk about this judgment, this wrath coming against the people's idolatry, coming against their spiritual complacency, coming against their political corruption, their lack of social justice, right? We come through those hard words in the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah, hearing God's eternal no to this way of life. Look, I, I'm telling you, you do not want to worship a God who cannot say no. You don't want to worship a God who doesn't make judgments against these things, against these things that make themselves known in your own life. But finally, in, in verse 14 of the third chapter, and it moves into verse 15, the, the text I want to repeat for you this morning, we finally get some good news in the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all this wrath. And the writer says this, the Lord, 
the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now this phrase, we've got to nuance, we've got to parse it a little bit. This phrase, taken away from the Hebrew, I don't think it quite gives the meaning of this word uh, it's due. Because I think uh, it's better understood, this Hebrew word, to literally mean a change of direction or a change of course. So in other words, it could read, the Lord has changed the course of God's judgments against you. And I think these two texts are paired together because John the Baptist is also talking about repentance, which literally means to turn around, to change your direction, to change your mind, to move in a different way. That's the, that's the synergy of these two texts. And that's actually what happens in real time for the people of God during the reign of Josiah. Because for those of you who know the story, you know that the, the people are exiled. You know that they're cast out. They're enslaved. They're, they're forced from their homes. And the trajectory only looks like destruction and despair. And yet what happens in and through this word that is proclaimed, what happens is freedom and restoration. There's a change in the people's destiny. A destiny that was headed for destruction and despair now comes in liberation and restoration because of this fundamental truth that God's judgment has a habit of changing course. God's judgment changes direction. God's judgment does not end in our destruction. God's judgment of you and of me does not end in our despair, but it ends in our freedom and it ends in our liberation and our restoration. Because God's judgment, if you don't remember anything else, remember this, church, God's judgment always ends in grace. God's judgment always ends in grace. I mean, is that not the paradigm we behold in Scripture? Do you remember that character, Joseph, and that beautiful multicolored coat he had and the jealousy of his brothers that caused them to throw him into a well to lie to their father to say that he'd been killed? Joseph, who then has is, is found uh, power and some standing in Egypt and a great famine has taken hold of the land and his brothers who are desperate come to him. They beg him for food and he makes a judgment of grace. And he gives them exactly what they need and reconciles that family once more. Remember that story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter, about a son who spent his father's inheritance in dissolute living, and he comes back to his father, a shell of himself, and his father runs toward him, runs toward him, embraces him, and throws him a party. His judgment ends in grace. Do you remember Peter, Jesus' closest friend, one of his closest friends who denied him three times on the eve of his crucifixion? Do you remember him saying, I don't know the man? And then Jesus appears to him after the resurrection and says, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you, for you are the rock. His judgment ends in grace. Friends, the whole of Scripture, from start to finish, in Genesis, there's a judgment. There's wrath against Adam and Eve, casting them out of the garden. But how does the story end? How does it change course? In the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter, there I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down. And there God made God's home with humanity. 
It's a judgment of grace. Here's the big idea and how all this connects, I think, to Advent. Christmas. Christmas is God's judgment taking a different course. Christmas is God's judgment moving in a totally unexpected direction. I mean, how does God judge the world? I mean, how is, the God, how is God judging the world right now, judging your life, judging my life, my spiritual laziness, our spiritual laziness, our idolatry, our, our moral indifference, our, our lack of pursuing social righteousness, our political corruption of our time? How does God judge it? God judges it in grace by showing up time and time again in and as the person of Jesus Christ, God shows up in our worst world to free us and to restore us to God, to one another, and to our true selves. I mean, that's why we have Zephaniah, and that's why we have John the Baptist on this third Sunday of Advent, because there is actually liberation and restorative power at the end of God's judgment. And here is the truth of the matter. Nobody likes to be judged. Nobody. I mean, in fact, I may get a couple of emails judging this sermon. That wasn't a very good sermon for the third Sunday of Advent, you know. Nobody likes to be judged. I've been walking with several families here in the church of high school seniors, right? This is an excruciating time for so many of them who are waiting on early action or early decision, have had their hearts set on a particular school, and the day of judgment has come. And it's either you're in or you're out. The world has little room for anything else. Nobody likes to be judged at work. You don't like to be judged in your relationships. You don't like to be, to be judged in your performances. Nobody likes to be judged. And there's a reason for that. Because judgment requires self-examination. Judgment requires us looking at some of the hard truths of our lives. Judgment requires us perhaps to change direction. Nobody likes to be judged. Because most of the time in the world, judgment leads not to victory, but to despair and destruction. But it's different with God. It's different with God. For when God judges you, and when God judges me, and listen, God judges us. God's judgment always ends in grace. It's the one relationship, it's the one place that leads us, as it's talked about in the, in the words of Zephaniah, it leads us and covers us and renews us in God's love. Listen to Zephaniah once more. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you home. 
At that time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among the people of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. It sounds counterintuitive to so much of our existence in the world, but let us wait on God's judgment. Let God judge your life. Let God judge your morality. Let God judge your purpose. Let God judge how you handle what you have been put in charge of. Let God judge you. Because in that judgment, you find the grace to be free, to be restored to the person God has uniquely created you to be. While we are waiting, come judgment of grace, come freedom and restoration in our life and in the life of the world. Amen.